Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Hear these words. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of our flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Okay, so many of you know me, grew up right here at Trinity. If you've been to one of our other services, you know my dad. He was, he still is the minister of music here. And that means that maybe some of you played a part in raising me in one way or the other. Like I told the last service, if you want the credit, you also have to take the blame. So there you go. Other of you, uh, others of you, I'm just now getting to know uh, for the first time, uh, and that's been a wonderful experience. I'm glad to meet you. Uh, but I'm not sure, just collectively, all of you, I'm not sure how many of you know the story of how I got here. And by here, I mean pastoral ministry, not just back at Trinity. Well, it all started the night I died. I was 23. I'd finally settled into my career as a police officer in a little town called Commerce, Texas. Now, we affectionately referred to Commerce as the training ground. I saw more action in my first two weeks than most officers see in 20 years. I was on the graveyard shift, and it was a night like any other. I don't recall the time, but I do remember being posted up about a block away from the police station, sitting there running speed. That means trying to catch people going fast. See, it was a long road, spanned the length of about five blocks, and the last two blocks didn't require you to stop at the intersection. And so if you thought the police were occupied elsewhere, it was a great time to travel well above the posted speed limit. Honestly, I was just there to buy time running out the clock until shift change. She's got a knife! Fear-snarled voice erupts over the radio. The voice on the radio belonged to a detective who was already on scene, alone. Drop the weapon or I'll shoot! Get on the ground! Well, there's no running out the clock now. Time stood still. I slapped the truck into drive and tore off down Pecan Street. The once idle engine of the Chevy truck now roared like a lion, hungry for the hunt. The emergency lights of the squad car lit the way. 
balancing off the somber darkness that is midnight in a small Texas town, while the ear-deafening siren awoke the darkness from its rim sleep. Fully fueled with adrenaline, training kicks in, and I'm processing everything at once. How's the detective handling the suspect until backup arrives? Where are the other officers coming from? What's the quickest route to the scene? And I raced down the street, faster and faster, and I made the turn onto Highway 11, which split the college town in two. I was fresh out of training, and the location where the knife-wielding attacker stood was one of those spots that, for some reason, always eluded my memory. There it is, I thought to myself, as I jerked the wheel, trying to make a right-angle turn at what had to be at least 45 miles per hour. I didn't make it. The now mangled heap of a once fine squad car was immediately discarded as if I'd done nothing but pull calmly into a parking spot, ready to clock in for the night. I sprinted across the street where the detective stood, still trying to disarm the assailant. A life choice was about to be made, and I wasn't sure who was going to be allowed to make the call, the detective or the woman. Faced with more than one officer now, guns drawn, both telling her what's going to happen, kid show, she surrenders. The incident is over with no injuries or physical altercation. But with $15,000 of damage to the squad car, my career would be over before it had really ever even begun. Completely unaware of what transcendent moment had literally just come crashing into my life, I returned home, moved back in with my parents, trying to figure out when, where, how to start over. Boundless kinetic energy rushing towards a life of possibilities and adventure suddenly stopped, like the pendulum that hangs lifeless after all momentum has been extinguished. My bed became a sarcophagus. I laid there a formless, lifeless shell of what I once was. When you lose everything you've planned and trained for, when you lose the only career that ever really made sense, life loses meaning. With barely enough effort to care for hygiene or food, I remembered a book that was given to me in the Trinity Youth Group that I never actually got around to reading. It was Every Young Man's Battle by Fred Stoker. And it was in that same place in the closet I had left it all those years ago. Midway through the book, my mind and soul are split. I'm all together back home in my parents' room, or my parents' house in my room, yet I'm somewhere else entirely. I can feel my heart pulsating through my body. I'm in tune with its rhythms so much that I can feel the blood flowing to and from every part of my body, like a mad scientist experiment with electricity mixed with fire. The feeling intensifies, it grows stronger and stronger, and I'm increasingly aware of even the tips of my fingers and my toes. But that wasn't just the night I died. It was the night I would be reborn. See, I grew up in a time and a culture when everybody went to church. It's just what you did, right? Not only was it socially unacceptable to not be in church, 
But there really wasn't too many options otherwise. A majority of the shops in town were closed, and the coaches could still put together a winning team without having people meet for practice on Sunday. I said it. So somewhat by default, children, youth ministry, they were well attended. All your friends were here. It just felt like the right place to be. But this also means, at least in my life, that I grew up rather indifferent about church. I never had to take it seriously, consider whether I actually believed it or liked it or wanted to go. Oh, we'd be there. So it was just a normal part of growing up, you know, just like going to school during these years of your life. And so as I grew up and I moved out and I went on to becoming an adult, church didn't really factor in. Now, I didn't renounce God or the church or anything like that, but as my routine, my lifestyle lent itself to the reshaping and remolding of who I was becoming, there really wasn't any understanding for the need of the church. Again, I didn't think church was worthless, but I didn't see any compelling reason to connect myself to this type of community. As I look back on it, I suppose growing up, I saw Christianity as a generation gap. All the people I knew who were dedicated to living a lifestyle that reflected Christ were more like my parents or my grandparents or their friends. Seemed like all my new friends, colleagues outside of the church could get along just as well as people inside the church. So it didn't seem like church was any different, like church was just a different option out of many, rather than understanding that it's the only option that makes any real difference. See, I now know that it wasn't a generation gap. It was a godly gap. The way the world sees the world and the way God sees the world are vastly different. It says in Ephesians 2 that you were dead through your trespasses and sins and once you once lived. You followed the course of this world, the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit at work among those who are disobedient. And for those of us like myself who grew up in the church, you didn't know anything different but Christianity, we struggle with verses like these. Like, okay, sure, sure, we're sinners. Nobody's perfect. I got you. But we've been more or less good people our entire lives. We've never really renounced Christianity, the church, or the faith. And while maybe you could point to some less than Christian college years, we'd be rather offended by the suggestion that we ever followed after the spirit at work in the disobedient. But I want you to look at the very next words with me in the passage. Verse 3 says that all of us once lived among the passions of our flesh, following the desires of our senses, following the flesh, where we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. All of us, the Ephesians, Paul, you and me, all of us, have walked around on this earth like a bunch of zombies. We were alive only as children of wrath. We survived only by following the spirit at work in the disobedient. We were just like everyone else. We were driven by the passions of our flesh, the desires of our senses. And what this means is that this reality 
is not reserved for axe murderers and psychopaths. It includes people who have been coming to church their entire lives. The reality of sin to destroy your life and then dance you around like a marionette doll that thinks he's a real boy is so strong that it also has the power to convince you that everything's just fine. You believe in God? Life's hard. It's just how it is. Hey, nobody's perfect. You've worked hard at being a respectable, upstanding member of society. You've done the best you can. You've got your life together better than this guy or, or that girl or whatever. And that's all anybody can ask, right? No. No. As your pastor, hear me say that none of that way of thinking is found anywhere in the Bible. It is a lie from the adversary that wants to keep you trapped in a life where well enough is good enough. Because when you are comfortable in death, you never go looking for life. And as someone who grew up in the church, hear me plead with you to understand that church attendance does not save you. Only Christ can save you. You can come to church faithfully for decades with your eyes closed and your ears shut to the transforming power of the gospel. Simply knowing stuff about the Bible doesn't transform your life. Only the Holy Spirit can take your knowledge of biblical information and turn it into biblical transformation. So if you would have asked me to answer questions regarding the book from youth group, I could give you the standard Sunday school answer, no problem. But truly understanding the book was a completely different matter. And what I began to understand was not the relation of the topic to the Bible, but the relation of the Bible to life. The Word of God is living and active. The thoughts, the ideas, the contents inside, they're meant to be lived out in our daily lives. It's real. This isn't some fairy tale. It isn't a tired book of, of wise sayings from the ancients. The Bible is real, and it is meant to be lived out. Again, the clarity surges through my body as God electrifies my heart, illuminating my sark, dom, uh, dark, somber soul like the lights and the sirens of the squad car racing down the empty street on that fate-filled night, all while I sat perfectly still reading a book in my childhood room. I like to lovingly think of that moment as the moment that God reached down and punched me in the face. Thank you. Wake up. There's a calling I need you to live into now. You will be a pastor. Go to the nations. Teach the word. Make disciples. And see, the reason I dig in the way I do to the first three uh, verses of Ephesians 2 is because I understand the weight and the glory of the first words in verse 4. But God. The cosmic, eternal weight and power of those words. But God. 
They all depend on our ability to grasp what they are upending. Each and every one of you in this room, watching online, each of us has had a time in our life when we were living in death. And if I go just by the numbers, some of you are living that way right now. The truth is that none of us are exempt from this reality. But there is a deeper truth, a more powerful, a more present reality at work in this world that is fighting for your affections and your desires. It is fighting for your life. Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5, but God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love for which he has loved us even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. See, the first three verses in Ephesians 2, they humble me. They convict me. They force me to see something inside myself that I cannot ignore or write off. But they also lead me to great joy and comfort because they point me to a power and a love that God has for me that is greater than anything that could stop it. I don't get overwhelmed or discouraged about the reality of death's grip on my life because when I dig into the grave, by the grace of God, I find that there has been another hand on me the entire time waiting for me to grab hold and come out. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not the results of works, so none of us may boast. And with the saving work of God in mind, I want to take just a second. I want to encourage those of you, like myself, so many others who grew up in the church, being a Christian's all we've ever known, or maybe you didn't grow up in the church, but you know, you've identified with Christianity for as long as you can remember. And I'm hearing an increasing majority of these people talk about the struggle to clearly identify that moment when they went from casual Christianity to a life consumed by the gospel. It's easy to listen to the testimony of someone who was clearly living a life outside of the faith, being able to point to that moment when they became a believer. But for some of us, some of us lifers, we left feeling encouraged. Yes, those are great stories. But we also kind of live, leave feeling insecure or like we're never going to measure up. We, we sometimes get a little unsure about how to tell our stories of coming to faith. We aren't even really sure if we have a moment in our life worth calling conversion. Maybe we know the voice of God. We're not sure how we can be all that sure. Well, who said that's the only way God works? Maybe we've been given the wrong idea about conversion. I only know of one person in the Bible who saw God in a burning bush. I only know one who was swallowed by a big fish. There is only one story in the Bible of Jesus coming down in a bright light and kicking somebody off of their horse. Does that mean that no one else had a miraculous conversion experience? This is the audience participation part of our program. 
No, of course not. That would be silly. Abraham is mentioned quite a bit in the Bible. He's the father of the Jewish nation. Yet his testimony is that he heard God tell him to pack up and travel somewhere else, and he did it. There's no miraculous conversion story of Abraham's faith in the Bible. But just like so many countless others who will go on to bear the name of prophet or disciple or man after God's own heart, Abraham's life is a narrative of following God through faith. He gets it wrong. He laughs at God's promises. He even fails to trust God a couple of times. But he never loses faith. He continues to trust the reality that God is with him and that God is for him and not against him. That's his conversion story. It's one that took a lifetime. It's a story of how God was at work from one ordinary moment to the next. And so might I suggest to you that each one of us has the same miracle at work in our lives. You were dead in sin. God gave you new life in Christ. Sometimes it happens in an instant, and there's a clear moment we can point to. Sometimes it happens over a lifetime, and we have to go back and look at things a little more clearly. Neither miracle is any less spectacular. Neither conversion experience is any less transformative. Don't get caught up in the idea that whoever has the better story means that they are a better Christian or that they somehow have a deeper life of faith. Salvation is not found in the sin you were saved from. Salvation is only found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I don't have a crazy conversion story about coming to faith in Christ. I just learned how to tell it that way. In fact, I got into a car wreck that ended a career I'd spent years preparing for. But that's not the moment that I identify as conversion. It wasn't the car wreck. At that time, I still had no idea that God was about to take the mang mangled wreckage of my life and show me a part of his glory that I never knew existed. The moment that changed my life was reading a book, a book I wanted to make fun of more than I wanted to take seriously, like how wildly uninteresting is that? The key is, and here's the key, the key is I've just had a lot of practice at trying to figure out how all the puzzle pieces fit together. I've had to tell the story a lot until I was able to identify, oh, okay, there's that moment, there's that moment, here's how they fit together, oh, here's how God's been working the whole time. But I didn't learn that in seminary. In fact, the version I gave you today, I developed in a creative writing class at Tech. She said, oh, tell us a personal story. I said, ooh, I've got one, I think. And as I began learning how to share my story and talk about the faith with others, I began learning how to look back on the events of my life with fresh eyes, and I was able to see God at work in places that I couldn't before. You'd be surprised how sharing your story can strengthen your faith and help others find theirs. 
Verse 10 gives us a clue to why that might be. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, what? To be our way of life. For we are what he has made us. You might be more familiar with the translations that say, for we are God's handiwork, or, you know, for we are his workmanship. And the Greek word there is poema. It's where we get our English word poem. You and I are the poem of God at work in this world. And we were created not to be vessels of destruction, cracked cisterns that do not hold water. On the contrary, you and I were created in the image of the living God, designed to do good works, and out of whose heart will flow rivers of living water, Jesus tells us in John 7. In Christ, you have a new way of life. The old is gone, the new has come. Death has been defeated, and the power of sin's grip has lost its grip on your life. And the day is coming upon you. As it comes upon you, not only shall you see clearly to be able to lift your eyes out of the grave, grab hold of your Savior, but as you wander down life's path, Your ears shall hear his voice directing you. This is the way. Walk in it. Let's pray. Creator of everything that is seen and unseen, holy God who has never stopped calling us back into your presence, we bow our hearts before you now. And as we open our lives to receive your forgiveness, Fill us with the riches of your mercy and steadfast love and turn us towards the light which brings life that we may follow Jesus Christ, your son, as our Lord and Savior every step of the way. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Trinity Podcast. To find out more about Trinity, visit us online at www.trinityreston.org.